This sermon was preached by Ed Moore, head pastor of North Shore Baptist Church in Bayside, Queens. Ed is one of the founders of Doctrines of Grace Church Planners. North Shore Baptist Church has planted five churches since 2005. You can find more sermons from this series and many others at www.ns-bc.org. Please feel free to distribute this sermon to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. People are bad. People are bad. One of the foundational, indisputable doctrines of the Christian faith is that people are bad. Simply put, it is the doctrine of sin, or if you like, the doctrine of total depravity. However you want to say it, people are bad. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. There is none righteous, no, not one, Romans 3.10. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins, Ecclesiastes 7.20. People are bad. Now, truthfully, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart, I would like today to be more positive and upbeat in my approach, but the evidence drives me to be realistic rather than to be optimistic. Uh, Evidence that I see in the newspaper, evidence that I see on the television, evidence that I see in the streets, evidence, unfortunately, that I see in the mirror, evidence that I see in the Bible, people are bad. Uh, Some people are worse than others. Some are far worse, but we are all bad. Now, that is not to say that we are as bad as we possibly could be. That is not to say that people are incapable of relative good. They are capable of relative good. Common grace produces vestiges of comparative good in some people. Jesus himself in Luke 6.33 said that even sinners do good who do good to them. But compared to God, there is none righteous. Uh, People are bad, and some people are very bad, and some of those very bad people, according to the Bible, have made their way into local churches. Not as occasional attenders or visitors, not even as regular attenders or as members, but according to Jude, some of these people who are very bad have made their way into churches as teachers and elders and pastors. Turn with me, please, to the book of Jude, the 65th book of the Bible. It's just one chapter in length. It's right before the book of Revelation. If you blink, you will miss it. It is a short book. And in this book, which we are going through here at North Shore Baptist Church, verse by verse, we learn that people are bad. The author of the book is Jude. He is the half-brother of Jesus. He is the full brother of James. Uh, He wanted to write a letter to these people about soteriology, about the doctrine of salvation, but he was diverted because of an emergency which arose, and that emergency is that certain ungodly men have crept into the church, allow Jude in his own words to explain what he is doing and why he is doing it in verses 3 and 4. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend or to fight for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Why? For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Next, 
he gives them a threefold reminder from the Old Testament in verses 5, 6, and 7. Three stories which share a lot in common. The story of the children of Israel, the story of the angels which fell, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Three stories which share a lot in common. In each story, they start off with a tremendous privilege. Uh, In each story, they commit horrible sin. In each story, they influence others to sin. And in each story, they are punished thoroughly and directly by God without human instrumentality. All three examples together collectively scream this truth. People are bad, and when one is given spiritual privilege and truth and blessing, and when they abuse it and when they influence others, God himself steps in and radically, dramatically takes matters into his own hands. And Jude wants them to be reminded that the result never looks pretty. Uh, See if you can detect that from these verses as I read 5 through 7. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay with their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. And just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Which brings us to our text today, verse 8. Now, before I read the verse, I want to read a portion of the verse, and that is two words within the verse. It is the verse uh, which is describing these people, these people. Uh, Let me reiterate who is being described here, these people. And we have to ask the question, which people? The people that he, he is describing here are not in prisons. They are not in gangs. They are not in bars. They are not in crack houses. The people described in verse 8 are in churches. And not only are they in churches, but they are leaders who have crept into the church. And so far from verse 4, we know that these people have been marked out for condemnation. They are reprobate or damned. They are ungodly. They pervert grace and twist it into a license for sexual immorality. And they have a problem in their Christology, that is, they deny the lordship of Jesus Christ. They are bad, and they are in the church. And so, like an eyewitness describing a criminal to an NYPD sketch artist, Jude gives us five additional characteristic traits of these apostate teachers in verse 8. As I read the verse, see if you can detect these five characteristics. Yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme glorious ones. From this verse, I would like you to note that these people, these people, they duplicate, they dream, they defile, they defy, and they defame. Father in heaven, we pause one more time to pray and to ask your help and to ask your blessing. Lord, what a joy it is just to own a Bible. Uh, what a privilege it is, Lord, to know how to read. What a, what a blessing and an honor it is to have a mind that can comprehend words, uh, your word. But Lord, more than that, what we need is your spirit for our Bibles and our reading ability and our reasoning process. Lord, it all amounts to nothing 
if your spirit is not pleased to open our hearts and to change us. And so, Lord, I pray for those who now are not regenerated. I pray that through the preaching of the gospel, your ordained means, Lord, I pray today that you would just breathe life into them, Lord, that you would effectually call them, and Lord, that they would see Christ as we have sung and as we have prayed, and they would see Christ and they would be saved. Lord, I pray the same thing for those of us who have already been regenerated. Lord, I pray that as your word is proclaimed this day, that we would see Christ and that we would once again, afresh, fall in love with our Savior. Now, Lord, we ask that you would protect our church from these people, as Jude describes them. And Lord, I pray that part of the means by which you would protect your church is to help us to understand who they are. And so for that reason, Lord, I pray that I myself can accurately describe what is going on in the verse. I pray that I can passionately apply it. And I pray, dear Lord, that each person will comprehend it and then be cheerful doers of this word. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Who are they? Well, they duplicate. In other words, they are not original. They are mimicking, they are imitating, they are replaying something from the past. Well, how do we know this? Because Jude writes, yet in like manner, these people also. Uh, In other words, in the same way. In the same way as what? Well, in the same way as the villains described in verses 5, 6, and 7 from the Old Testament. It's interesting to note that in verse 8, the... Sins which were committed in chapter in verses 5, 6, and 7 have been restated in reverse order. It's known as a chiastic construction, A, B, C, C, B, A. In other words, those who defile the flesh, well, that is referring back to Sodom and Gomorrah. Those who reject authority, well, that refers to the angels who fell. And those who blaspheme glorious ones is a reference back to the children of Israel and how they slandered Moses. There is nothing new under the sun. They duplicate. They didn't invent the evil that they were doing and teaching in the church. They were just putting a fresh coat of paint on ancient evil. Let me give you an example of how this has worked itself out in church history. In the 1870s, the church was invaded and infected and attacked through a false doctrine from the Watchtower Society and their founder, Charles Taze Russell. You know them better as the Jehovah's Witnesses. It is a cult with demonic doctrines which damns people's souls and they come to the conclusion by twisting and distorting and changing scripture that Jesus is not God. Now someone would look at that and say, wow, that was very innovative on their part. But actually it wasn't. Uh, For as persuasive as they have been, What they have been teaching is not original, nor is it innovative. In fact, that same doctrine was taught by the heretic Arius in the year 325 uh, AD when at the Council of Nicaea he was declared to be a heretic. For what reason? Because he taught that Jesus is not God. But even Arius cannot claim a copyright on Christological heresy. Because even Jude describes his culprits in verse 4 as denying the deity of Christ. You see, even those in the book of Jude are not the genesis of this false teaching. If you want to get back to the root of where false teaching starts, it has one fountainhead. And that is Satan himself. The Pharisees who hated Jesus and plotted his death and 
eventually killed him. Jesus speaks to them in John 8, 44. And listen to what he says to them. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. And the 20th century church is under many attacks. And the 21st century church is also under many attacks from within. And at times, people who are exasperated uh, will, uh, with respect to these attacks which come upon the church, throw up our hands and ask the question, what will they think of next? And here's the answer. They're not going to think of anything next. In fact, they haven't thought of anything this time. It's just a rehashing of what has already happened. God and his people have been defending the church from the same enemy since the Garden of Eden. Yes, he is our ancient foe who seeks to work us woe. And his path, craft, and his power are great. But his methods are recycled. And the 21st century disciples need to look back 2,000 years and realize that Jude was dealing with the same thing that we're dealing with today. And here's why this should cause us to have hope and to take heart. First of all, because we learn from this that those who oppose God always, always, always lose. The children of Israel who did not believe, they lost. The angels who left their first estate, rebelled against God and cast out of heaven, they lost. Sodom and Gomorrah, in their blatant sensuality, they lost. And the enemies of the gospel will continue to lose. Another reason that we need to take heart is because God always, always, always will himself preserve and defend and protect the true church that preaches the true gospel. He's been doing this successfully for a very long time. Second Peter 2 verse 9 says that the Lord knows how to rescue the ungodly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment unto the day of judgment. And so, although Satan is a very formidable foe, we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, that we are not ignorant of his schemes. The apostates duplicate the past, and their destruction will be duplicated as well. They will not have success. The point being, the church of Jesus Christ will prevail. They duplicate. But they also dream. Look again, please, in Jude 8. Yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams. Now, before we consider what the text says, let's consider for a moment what it does not say. It's profound to note what is not in the text. And what is absent is very telling. And that is the Word of God, the Bible. They do not rely or lean upon or stand upon the Word of God. They are coming in God's name. They are using religious lingo. They refer to themselves as spiritual, but they are not using the Bible. And they are not relying upon the Bible. Rather, they are preaching their dreams. Now, what does this mean? Well, it could mean a couple of different things. Maybe, literally, it means their dreams. That when they go to sleep, that which they dream is what they preach to others. Or maybe it means their daydreams. Or maybe it means dreams which they have fabricated. Uh, we're not real sure. Jude doesn't specify. But it really doesn't matter at the end of the day. If it is referring literally to their dreams, well then, in that case... 
They don't need to go to Bible college and they don't need to go to seminary and they don't need a library. All they really need in order to preach is a bottle of NyQuil and they'll be fine. Where are you going, honey? I'm going to study for my sermon. You're going to bed? Yes. Well, my dreams are the source of my doctrine. And that's exactly what's happening here. Now, a question needs to be asked theologically. Can God speak through dreams? Well, to answer it, first off, we know that certainly in the past that he has spoken through dreams. Uh, We have a man in the Old Testament by the name of Joseph who both dreamed and knew how to interpret dreams. And through that means, he saved the Jewish people from extinction. We have another man in the New Testament. His name is also Joseph. He is the legal guardian of Jesus. He is the, the uh, husband of Mary. And he saved the true Israel of God, Christ, in being warned in a dream and took them to Egypt and escaped from Herod. We see that a sign of the coming Pentecost uh, prophesied by Joel and fulfilled in Acts chapter 2 is that the old men would dream dreams. We see that even unconverted people can receive dreams which are true. Remember that Pilate's wife suffered much in a dream because of Christ prior to his crucifixion. And in the book of Acts, Paul would occasionally direct or redirect based upon a dream. So you can't argue that dreams in and of themselves are wrong or bad or false. Now perhaps it can be argued that God no longer uses dreams as he once did prior to the completion of his word. But that's not the point here. The point is, whether dreams can be used or not, the point is, is that these ungodly teachers lean upon and they rely upon their dreams and they proclaim their dreams as if it were the word of God. And their dreams uh, might be precipitated by what they ate. Their dreams might be precipitated by their imagination. Their dreams might be brought about by what they watched on television before they went to bed. Or their dreams might be demonic. Or, put your seatbelts on, the dreams which they have, which are false, might be brought to them by God. A part of a delusion which God intentionally sends them. This is a tough verse but this is the word of God, Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. And for this reason, God will send them, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now, we'll look at the second half of the verse a little bit later, but for right now, it seems pretty clear to me that the way in which they are believing something which is false is that God is the one that is sending them that delusion. But whatever the case, the message that they proclaim, relying upon their dreams, is not from God in the sense that it is for the edification and protection of his people. You see, what they are preaching is a lie. And even if the dream which they preach is factual, well, even still, it's a lie because it ultimately damns and does not point to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But what I mean by that is, sometimes someone will dream a dream about something which is to come to pass, and what they dream will be correct. That does not mean that they are a messenger from God. In fact, our reading from the book of Deuteronomy uh, tells us that if a dreamer of dreams comes to you and he 
gives something and what he says comes to pass, but yet he still tells you to abandon your God and to go after idols. Do not listen to him because I am testing you to see whether or not you love me and you'll serve me with all of your hearts. And then he goes on to tell Moses that in the nation of Israel, the prescription for that was death. But the point that I'm trying to make here is that it is frightening when you turn on the television and you see a preacher start off his sermon with these words. God spoke to me in a dream. And here's what he had to say. See, here's the problem with that. You can't argue with it. If you preface any statement with God told me, then you can say anything you want. It doesn't matter how nonsensical it is. And no one can challenge it or argue with it. I mean, how can you challenge what God has said? That's why we ought not to have dreams as the text for our sermon. And people who preach their dreams have carte blanche to say whatever they want. No one can say anything against them. And they will use this deception, and you've seen it time and time again. They will use this deception to raise money, or should I say to steal money to line their pockets. They will use this deception to seduce women. They will use this deception in some ways even to line people up and to lace their Kool-Aid with cyanide and cause them to commit mass suicide. Why? Because they're preaching their dream rather than preaching the Bible. Now, by dream, I'm not talking about a Martin Luther King, I have a dream. That is a good dream. Uh, that is speaking of hope. That's speaking of, 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 of an aspiration for the future. That is a good thing. And, and he's not talking here about your dreams uh, of, of uh, earning a degree or becoming a doctor. That is a good dream. That is a hope. No, what he's referring to here is the supposed direct revelation that comes from God. And by the way, we have direct revelation that comes from God. The only problem is it's not my dream. It's the Bible. And when people say that the revelation that they have received is directly from God apart from the Bible... Jude says that an alarm ought to go off in our minds, an alarm of discernment that says this is not right. And here's how we can be protected. By our good shepherd. Jesus says in John chapter 10 verse 27, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Earlier in that chapter, he talks about the fact that sheep are not going to follow someone that is not their shepherd. John 10, 5. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. And so what you have is basically an element that is brought into the church by the devil, which deceives people, and it is very sad in one sense. On the other hand... It is a very useful tool of God, and here's why. I believe that many a church has been purged and purified by false teachers coming in and preaching a false gospel and leading away those who were not true believers. I'll give you an example of this. The doomsday fanatic heretic Harold Camping of Family Radio served this purpose for the church in that he told all people that if they wanted to be saved, they needed to leave their church. Now, what did he do? Well, he basically was preaching something apart from the Word of God. He was preaching his dream. What ended up happening? 
They feel very sad for these people, but if they were his sheep, they would not, if they were the sheep of Christ, they would not have listened to the voice of Harold Camping. Dreamers serve a purpose in the kingdom. They preach, and those who follow them really are not of his sheep. Now, that is not to say that next week we're going to bring someone in who's a false prophet and use them kind of as a magnet to see who will listen to them, and then you can all follow them out of the church, and then our church will be pure. No, we're not going to do that. These people creep in unawares. In any event, the universal rule of thumb, anytime, anywhere, is this. When listening to a preacher or a teacher of the Bible, you must ask the question, do they proclaim points and demonstrate those points and support those points from the Bible or is it from something else? And whether that something else is literally their dream or it is their story or their experience or the experience that they've heard from someone else or whether it is a philosophy or whether it is a psychology or it's just horse sense or common, common uh, public opinion or conventional wisdom, whatever it is apart from the Bible, do not listen. They duplicate and they dream. Which brings us to our third point, and that is they defile. They defile. Look again, please, at Jude 8. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh. What does this mean, they defile the flesh? Well, back in verse 4, we learned that they used a distortion of the concept of grace in order to promote and to indulge in sensuality. And the sexual promiscuity of the people described here is never divorced from their doctrine. I want us to do a little Bible study this morning, and I want you to note something, and that is very important. And that is that bad doctrine and bad behavior are Siamese twins. Listen to a quote from William Jenkin, who wrote in the 1650s. Where affection sways, judgment decays. Where affection sways, judgment decays. Another quote, same author. Lusts oppose all entrance of light, which opposes them. You have to think about it for a while, but it's a very profound statement. And that is, you have a lust, a desire for sin, and light tries to penetrate into your heart, understanding truth. If that truth is going to oppose your lust, your lust is going to oppose that truth. And as your lust opposes that truth, your doctrine will deteriorate. Bad doctrine is not a result of poor study. Bad doctrine is a result of immoral living. And when I say bad doctrine, I'm not talking to those who have theological differences within Christianity. A few nuances on, on uh, um, things that Christians, true Christians, would disagree on. I'm talking about bad doctrine in the form of heresy, i.e. denying the deity of Christ and things of that nature. Uh, let's do the Bible study, and let's start with 2 Thessalonians 2, 11 and 12. We've already looked at it, but notice this strong delusion. God is the one that sends it, but what is the source of it? What, what is the reason? What motivates God to do this? For this reason, God will send them a strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but what were these people like? The problem wasn't their doctrine primarily. The problem was their morality. They had pleasure in unrighteousness. They were in love with their sin. Here's another example. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. Now, it's a verse which is often 
quoted, misquoted, and then supposedly corrected. How many times have you heard people say, money is the root of all evil, and someone will correct them and say, au contraire, it is the love of money that is the root of every kind of evil. Well, how many of those people that have ever corrected someone for misquoting that verse have you ever heard to go on and to quote the rest of the verse? And the rest of the verse will teach that this lust for money is also going to produce in these people a deterioration of their faith and doctrine. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil for which some have gone, have strayed from the faith. They have strayed from the faith in their greediness. You see, bad doctrine is connected with bad behavior. Here's another one. Titus chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers. These are the teachers who have worked their way into the church, these apostate teachers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped who subvert whole houses, teaching things they ought not. Why do they teach bad doctrine? What drives it? Bad behavior. For the sake of dishonest gain. Do you see it? Here's another example from the book of Romans, chapter 16, verses 17 and 18. Now I urge you, brethren, to note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned. And to avoid them. For those are such who do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ. But what do they serve? They serve their own belly. And for the interpretation of what most commentators think belly means there. It doesn't mean your stomach. It is a sensual word. They serve their own belly. And by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. Do you see that their behavior and their doctrine are tied together? One more example, 2 Timothy 3, verses 6 and 7. For of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women loaded down with sins. Now, he makes it very clear here, Paul does, that the problem that these women have is not a cultural problem. It's not an educational problem. It's not that they got a hold of a bad book on hermeneutics. No, the problem that these women primarily have is that they are loaded down with sins. And they're led away by various lusts. Their problem is moral. And what is the result? Well, these women are always learning, but they are never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And I could give you many, many more examples. The point is, we need to learn how one comes to a proper understanding of doctrine. Now, is it from the Word? Yes, you wouldn't get an argument. Is it from God revealing Himself through shining the light through His Spirit? Yes, it is that. But, hand in hand with this, goes a desire to obey the Word. Uh, Here's how David put it in Psalm 119, verse 100. I understand more than the ancients. I'm younger than they are, but I understand more than they do. Why does David understand more than they do? Because I keep your precepts. Uh, This because statement here is very profound. The reason why David is able to understand truth is because he is willing to obey that truth. David's son, Solomon, writes this. Evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand all. You want to improve in your doctrine? 
Improve in your obedience. Improve in your obedience. Another quote from Jenkin from the 1650s. Love we no sin if we would leave no truth. That is a 1650s way of saying sin makes you sad and sin makes you stupid. I was listening to a sermon on the radio one time. A pastor was talking about a friend of his, a friend that he went to seminary with. They had both gone into the ministry together. As they were in the ministry together, um, his friend got married. He had a family. He had a church. He had a ministry. And all of a sudden, this friend of his began to say some things in his doctrine which were somewhat questionable. And then over time, he began to deny Jesus Christ doctrinally. And then he eventually began to say that the Bible is not the word of God. And then the man left the ministry and was a self-avowed atheist. And when this pastor went to him and said, what is going on in your life? We were in seminary together. We, we, we went into the ministry together. And now you're to the point where you don't even believe that there is, is, is a God. His friend said, well, I have to confess something to you. Years before my doctrine began to deteriorate, I was in a secret, adulterous affair. You see, what caused his mind to slip was not bad study. It, it, it was bad living. And Jesus says in John seven seventeen, if anyone's will is to do God's will. And you have to ask yourself today, as you're, as you're hearing the word of God, is your inclination to just learn about it or is it to do it? And Jesus said, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. In other words, the way that you can become discerning is to live a holy life. And so do you see why Jude makes the point of saying... Look for these people and mark out not only their false doctrine, but look at the way that they live their lives. Whether it is a lust for sex or for money or for pride or for recognition, their problem is not fundamentally theological. Their problem is moral. The rudimentary problem is morality. Now, I'll give you a side note this morning. For those of you who are unsaved, First of all, welcome to North Shore Baptist Church. We are glad, we are overjoyed that you are here. Seeing you does our hearts good. But if you sit there and you say, you know, this whole thing about being born again, I just don't get it. I mean, God hasn't turned on the light for me. He hasn't called me. He hasn't revealed himself to me. Well, all of that is true. But let's be honest. Your root problem is not intellectual or, or doctrinal. Your root problem is moral. You love yourself, therefore you love your sin. You love your sin more than you love God. You are bad. Uh, people are bad. And the solution for bad people is not that they try to become good because they can't become good. Uh, they certainly can't become good enough for God. In fact, they can't become good at all. We have a bad heart and a bad record. And the solution for bad people like you and me is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I will explain it to you now as simply as I can. God is good. You are bad. And because he is good, and I mean ultimately good, he will and he must punish those who are bad. But he is also love. And without forfeiting his goodness, this good God 
This loving God punished his son who is also good. And so you ask the question, how is it that a good God would punish his good son? The answer to that question is that God in heaven, as it were, went to the filing cabinet and pulled out the drawer and pulled out your file with your name on it, with your sins in that file. And he went over and he got an eraser and he erased your name and he wrote the name of his son. And then every sin which you have ever committed now is placed upon the record of his son. And then he didn't just take it and put it back into the filing cabinet, but he took those sins and he punished them upon the cross. Christ died for our sins. Christ died with our sins. He himself is good. He never committed any sins. But Jesus, the good son of God, took the sins of bad people like you and me. It's called substitution. There upon the cross, bleeding and dying, your name was forever erased. Forever erased from being bad. Now, in your behavior, you continued to be bad to varying degrees. But ultimately, you in the eyes of God are good. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, so that you in his sight might be good, so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And Jesus, taking our wrath upon the cross dies in our place. Christ died for our sins. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says Christ died for our sins. The good Savior died for or in place of the bad people. And he rose again and he's alive today. And here is the good news of the gospel. Today is not judgment day. Today, today, the 8th of January, 2012, is salvation day. And whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so my encouragement to you is to submit to him to abandon your sin, to cry out to Him, to surrender to Him, to be saved from the wrath that is to come. Those who do not call upon Him and do not believe in Him will perish. They will suffer eternal conscious punishment. Today, I say to all of you bad people, go to our good Savior for salvation. Even if you are those who defile the flesh. Who are these false teachers? They duplicate, they dream, they defile, and now watch this, they defy. They're rebels, they're defiant. Jude verse 8 says that they reject authority. Uh, They fight authority and authority always wins. Uh, Get the picture. They come into the local church and if it is a good local church, if it is a healthy local church, it has a plurality of godly men serving as elders under Christ's headship, under the authority of the Word of God, and they, the elders, function in that local church. But by contrast, these false teachers reject authority. I am not suggesting that you turn on your television and for long periods of time watch the people that I am referring to today. But if you would like to do some research into this, you will discover that when you watch one of these programs, it is headed by a person and they have set themselves up as the authority and the ministry is in their name rather than a plurality of elders. They set themselves up as the boss. A rebel operates as a rebel on all levels. That's why, parents, I want to tell you the biblical parenting is so important. 
Because when a parent does not have control over the child, it's going to spread to every area of that child's life. They're not going to respect teachers or principals. They're not going to listen to coaches. They're not going to comply with the police. They're not going to obey the law. They're not going to respect the military. They're not going to be good employees, and they will not submit to elders of a local church. These women will not submit to their husbands. These husbands will not respect their marriage vow. They, none of them will bow before the word of God and concerning Christ himself, what they ultimately will say in defiance is, I will not have this man to rule over me. That child of yours who is defiant and not corrected is being taught to say to God, I will not have this man to rule over me. But that's, a, that's another sermon for another day. For now, mark my word, Those who pride themselves in being rebels. Have you ever heard the person say, you say black and I'm going to say white. You say one thing, I'm going to say another. The law is here, I'm going to step over that law, even if it doesn't benefit me to step over that law, because I am a law unto myself. You see a person that is a rebel in one area of life, Usually they are going to be pig-headed in every area of life. And rebellion is no small sin. Jude said they reject authority. Just like the angels who fell from heaven, now are demons rejecting the authority of God. And it is no small sin. It is a mark of the unconverted. 1 Samuel 15, 23 says, For rebellion is as the sin of divination or witchcraft. Those who refuse to play by the rules are rebels. They are in rebellion. And Jude says, if they make their way into your church and they start to take over and they start to teach, one way to identify them is that they will not be submissive to authority. By contrast, the good shepherd, Jesus Christ, who is God, submitted to the authority of his father and was obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. We cannot call ourselves Christians. A Christian is a follower of Christ. We cannot call ourselves Christians and at the same time be of a rebellious spirit. So ask yourself, are you submissive or are you rebellious? They duplicate, they dream, they defile, they defy. And finally this morning, ah, they defame, they slander, they blaspheme. Verse 8 and blaspheme the glorious ones. Now, it's a tough phrase. Who are these glorious ones? Commentators are divided as to the meaning. Some say that the glorious ones here, I even read one commentator who said this, the glorious ones are the elders of the church. I can tell you for certain that that is not true. I can tell you for sure that's not true. Most commentators say that the glorious ones here refer to angels. I would agree with that, but now the question comes up, Is it referring to the elect or holy angels or is it referring to the fallen angels known as demons or is it referring to both? I would have to say that I think it's referring primarily to demons and here's why. I have three reasons. One, what sense would it make for a person coming in the name of Christ, even if that person is a charlatan, a fraud, an Elmer Gantry, what advantage would they have to blaspheme or to slander holy angels. I've never seen it done in Scripture, and I can't think where they would gain an advantage by... Would I endear myself to you in any way if I began to speak out against the angels of God in heaven right now? It would be pretty easy to detect me as a fraud, wouldn't it, if I were speaking against the glorious ones, against the 
angels in heaven. So I don't think it's that reason, or I don't think it's that for that reason. Another reason is because of the parallel verse in 2 Peter chapter 2. Remember, 2 Peter 2 and the book of Jude are parallel passages, and in this text, which is the same as Jude in its content, clearly it's talking about demons, and especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. That should sound familiar, seeing as how that's what we've been talking about for the last 45 minutes. They are presumptuous and self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. So clearly there it is referring to demons. But the main reason why I think that this speaking evil of the glorious ones or blaspheming the glorious ones, the reason that I believe that it is talking about speaking against demons is because in the immediate context, that is the next verse, we have an angelic being who refuses to speak out against a demonic being. It's Michael against Satan concerning the body of Moses. Verse 9. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. And we will look at that the next time we get together. So, what does this mean? Here's what it means. The mark of a false teacher is that they will speak flippantly about the devil and demons and they will boss them around as though they were punks in a schoolyard. There was this one preacher, I kid you not, he was preaching his dream and in his dream he said that the room that he was in became frigid, cold, ice cold. And all of a sudden the furniture began to levitate. All of it was levitating as he was freezing in this room. And he stopped and he commanded the demons to leave the room and he lifted the window and commanded the demons to get out and just then the temperature of the room returned to what it was and the furniture came crashing to the ground and was lying all over the place and he went over to the window and he stuck his head out and he said, you demons get back in here and put the furniture back where you found it. Wow. And as he's preaching that, for real, the people, as you did, laughed and thought, oh, what a wonderful man of God. And as I read my Bible, what he did was demonic. The lie that he told was demonic. Now, I'm not saying that we are to say nice things about the devil. We certainly aren't to worship him. And we are not to be afraid of him in the sense that Christ will protect us. And we are not to fear him. We are not to reverence him. But a true child of God will have a healthy respect for his power. And a fool, an apostate, a false teacher will try to gain advantage of the people by saying, look at me, I will go toe-to-toe with the devil. I am your leader. Listen to me. Follow me. Again, I don't know if I'm giving you good application right now or not. God forgive me if I'm not. Limit yourself to about 10 minutes. But go to the television stations where these people whom I have described are on. And it really, sad to say, it doesn't matter which one you watch because they're all pretty much the same. They will have a ministry in their own name. 
they will be filthy rich. You will never hear them preach the gospel or the cross or from the Bible, maybe a verse here or a verse there, and it will be taken out of context. You will hear them speak out against the demons, and they will, they will uh, Satan, I bind you in the name of Jesus, this, that, or other nonsense. You will hear this from them. And it's just amazing to me that God's word could not be clearer, yet people put up with it. Now, after about 10 minutes, please go back to ESPN. But just to prove that I'm not lying to you, this stuff really does exist. As we close today, I hope that this message has been helpful as you consider who it is that you listen to. And as you study Jude 8, meditate upon it and identify what it looks like in the world and run in the opposite direction. But don't just run. Run to the Lord and run to teaching that will honor God from His Word. The best safeguard that we have, ladies and gentlemen, is to be students of the Word, to read our Bibles, to study, and for the power of the Holy Spirit to look at what's going on in the world. And as we read our Bibles, to delight in Christ and in His Gospel, Christ who died and rose again. Father in heaven, I want to thank you for your word that it is true. And Lord, uh, we need to be guarded against our dreams and visions and thoughts and imaginations. And Lord, we just need to go back to your Bible, to what you have said. And so Lord, you please, by your spirit, direct us there. And Lord, please be our teacher. And Lord, I would ask that you would protect our church. Father, I would pray that you would please regenerate those who are not saved this day, that you would show them that they are bad and that you are good. Lord, I pray that together we might serve you and love you. Thank you, Lord, for this time that we've had to study your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon from Doctrines of Grace Church Planners. If you would like to learn more about Doctrines of Grace Church Planners, or support our church planning efforts in the New York City area, please visit www.dg-cp.org.